All right, well, good morning and welcome. We're glad you're here. So we happen to be moving to the book of Titus this morning. So go ahead and locate the book of Titus. So you're going to pass up First and Second Timothy in what's an area of your Bible called the pastoral epistles. When you hear epistle, I have no idea why they named it an epistle. <laughs> what is that? An epistle is a letter. So some of the books of the Bible are called books, and some are called letters. And this happens to be a letter from the Apostle Paul. And uh, he wrote a good number of the letters in your New Testament. And this particular letter he writes to a man named Titus. So that's where we're going. Titus is only three chapters. So it's not going to take us too long to move through the book of Titus, but let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are grateful to be together again on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for the rain that has really uh, washed over Southern California for the last several weeks now. We're just grateful for it. And Father, we're also grateful for the wind because the wind blows out a lot of the junk and there's been many beautiful mornings where we've actually been able to see the mountains and we're so grateful. Snow-capped mountains and things that we take for granted like water supplies and things like that that have really been down in Southern California, but thank you that the rain has come. And thank you that your word is like the snow and the rain, that it falls to the ground and it brings forth growth into our lives. And we're so grateful for it. We need it so desperately, Lord. We need to grow. Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like newborn babies, we're supposed to long for the pure milk of the word that we might grow thereby. And this is a community of saints, Lord, that is growing. They're growing personally, and you've brought some numeric growth to this fellowship, and we're just grateful. We're grateful for each precious soul, each person that's experiencing the growth, the best growth, from one degree of glory to another. As we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, you're in the faith-growing business, Lord, and thank you that you do that in our personal lives through good times and sometimes through the stretching seasons of difficulty. Wherever we may be this morning, Lord, we are just grateful to be together, and we're grateful to be able to have some time in the Word of God. So may you speak, and may we hear what you say to us and grow as a result and become more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so as we move to this new series called Grace and Godliness in the book of Titus, I wanted you, you to just take a look at the graphic there. Grace and Godliness. So... When you look at the Bible and you look at how life works, spiritual life works, grace always precedes godliness. You don't get saved by godliness. You get saved by grace, and that grace leads to godliness. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about that order this morning. I'm going to talk to you about three branches that the book of Titus addresses. So my wife often asks me, she does all the graphics for the church, or a good number of them, and she'll say, what's your graphic? Like, what, give, me, give me an idea of an image of where you're going. And so I always have to get it to her like Thursday afternoon, <laughs> like, ah, okay. So the book of Titus actually is a book about growth, so a tree is beautifully appropriate. But notice in the graphic, there's three branches that you can see there. And there's three areas where godliness is addressed in the book of Titus. And they are 
in the church, the family, and the world. So that's where we're going. And these three chapters are going to kind of break up that way. The church, the family, and the world. That's where our godliness needs to impact the culture. But we're not going to have a godly life until we first have encountered the grace of God. And the grace of God is all through the book of Titus. Just look ahead for a second at verse 11 where Jerry just led us. The grace of God, Titus 2.11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But the grace, notice in Titus 2.12, instructs us, grace teaches us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So that, there's a, an example of a verse that has grace and godliness together. We're saved by grace, but grace produces. Here's the idea. If, if you think of a tree, grace is the trunk of the tree. Godliness is what branches out of the tree. And a tree is often used in Psalm chapter 1, for example, of a man or a woman who meditates on the word of God, how often? Day and night, and that person will be like a tree. But that tree is a blossoming tree. That tree is a fruitful tree. In fact, Jesus said, you will know people by their fruits. That's how you'll know if someone has encountered the grace of God. Now, we want to make sure we have the order correct. We're saved by grace, not by godliness. But godliness will flow out of a life of touched by grace. So, it's impossible, really, for a Christian not to have fruits coming out of your life. Now, you can have seasons where... You know, fruit production is down. <laughs> How does that happen? Well, usually it's because you're not receiving the nutrients that produce growth. Let's just face it. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between what you invest, or to put it another way, how deep your roots grow and how much fruit comes out of your life. In fact, I'm not a tree expert, but I've read enough on these kinds of ideas to know that uh, those who are experts in the field say that what you see come out of the ground in regard to a tree is roughly equivalent to the depth of its roots. So, whatever's going to come out of your life is really about how deep you are. Now, the modern church has been accused of being a mile wide and about an inch deep. You know, we're, we're oftentimes accused of being big into numbers. We want a lot of people to show up at churches because somehow we gauge the, you know, the effectiveness or the, uh, the success of a church by numbers. But look, numbers have really not much to do with a church unless each of those people are producing fruit. Then the numbers are extremely important, Right? But they don't mean a whole lot if there's just a bunch of spectators sitting in a church on Sunday morning and then they go out and they don't produce any fruit. But I know different of this congregation because I know you guys are going out there and I know you're trying to make a difference in the world and that's really what these letters are about. These, are, these particular letters, I remember them as the five T's, okay? And they are 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, they're all packed together in your Bible. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians have been called church epistles. 
really letters that have been written specifically to the church, although really they all could fall in that category. First and second, Timothy and Titus have been called pastoral epistles. So for the sake of genre, if you will, they are called pastoral epistles because they deal with ideas of leadership. Leadership. And every one of you in this room has some sphere of leadership. So you'll want to tune in. But I would say this, that this particular letter to Titus and First and Second Timothy are required reading for pastors. And for that matter, anybody who wants to be in church leadership needs to know these letters. In fact, sometimes I, I look at the landscape and I'll watch pastors interviewed and I sometimes wonder if they've read these letters. Because the way that the church is set up or what's happening seems to be the opposite oftentimes of what I see in the pastoral epistles. So grace and godliness. Here's a, here's a great verse to see the balance of this. It's in Ephesians, which is just a few pages back. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to show you kind of this foundation as we're, we're going to build on this idea of grace and godliness. Ephesians 2, it's well-known verses to most of you. But here's what Paul says. This is verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 8, through faith. Grace is what saves you. How you receive grace is through the channel of faith. Grace is a beautiful word in the Bible. It's a word called charis. If you're interested, it's spelled C-H-A-R-I-S. You pronounce it charis. And it's a word that speaks of the benevolence of God, the goodness of God. Some, some have said that the acronym for grace is best explained by this acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. That's what grace is. Grace is free. It's a gift. You can't earn it. That's why you have to have this order uh, totally in mind because godliness doesn't save you. But a lot of Americans, and for that matter, a lot of people in the world and in other religions believe that their goodness is going to save them. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's no one good. No, not one. So you have to have an encounter with grace. Jesus is the face of grace. If you want to just simplify things, just whenever you think of grace, just think of Jesus, because Jesus is God's grace. He is God's grace on display in your life demonstrating God's love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. He took our place. That's the idea of grace. Christ took our place. If you like rhymes, there you go. Grace is Christ taking our place. Dying in, on our behalf. Taking the wrath of God so that his righteousness is now given to my account simply by my faith in Christ. So, Notice the emphasis, Ephesians 2.8, and that not of yourselves, it is what? It's the gift of God. It's not as a result of works. One of my heroes in days gone by is Walter Martin. And Walter Martin said that this idea of not by works has to be driven into the hearts and souls of men. And he pounded the pulpit with these words, not by works, not by works, not by works, so that we would listen because I'm not sure we're convinced that God loves us just on the basis of grace alone. But Paul says, not as a result of works. No. Not one person 
is going to be saved by their good deeds. Not one person is going to end up in heaven and say, oh, you won't believe what I did to get here. Right? I logged a certain amount of time doing X, Y, and Z. Nope. You're not getting into heaven like that. Although I will say this, that it is very tempting for us to think that that's why God loves us because we live in a very performance-oriented society. (laughs) We get rewarded for performance, right? At work, in athletics, you know, you name the area. But now when it comes to our salvation, we have to wholly depend upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's totally freeing once you get your arms around it. But it's hard as, as, as human beings for us to really, I think, accept it. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. Here's the reason God knows us as humans so that what? No one should boast. No boasting. If we're going to boast in anything, it's going to be in the cross of Christ. However, it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The word workmanship It could be translated, we are his work of art. The Greek word is poema. It speaks of something like a poem that has structure. We are his workmanship. We are his work of art. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? We should walk in them. Our response to grace is faith. Our response to good works is to walk them out. Let me say that one more time. Our response to God's grace is faith. Faith is the receptor that receives grace. Our response to God's good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them is to walk in them. So there is a responsibility. In regard to grace, we receive it. In regard to good works, we walk them out. That's the response. So although God is always the initiator, you could say God's the initiator in the grace, and in the good works. We, we can see both of those ideas here in Ephesians 2. He initiates the grace through Christ and the good works he's already prepared beforehand. However, our responsibility is to respond to grace by receiving it, and our responsibility is also to walk out the good works. David Jeremiah gave, gave an illustration. I think it's a good one. I'll make it more appropriate for our audience. He said, imagine that uh, I told you that at the end of this service, I have free tickets for all of you to, what's better, the Clippers or the Lakers? The well, Lakers are up and coming, but the Clippers are better right now, right? All right, to the Clippers game. You guys don't seem excited. And I said to you, I have enough for all of you, free parking, free hot dog, everything. All you have to do, praise the Lord, all you have to do is come and get the, your ticket at the end of the service. So if you didn't come up, if you just went in your car and you left, you have no ticket to the Clipper game. Pastor Michael bought the ticket for you. How sad that you wouldn't receive it. But if you don't take it, it's not yours. That's how grace works. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is for the whole world. However, if you don't get your ticket, then you're not going to heaven. You must receive the gift. It's been paid for, but you still have to take it. And if you don't come get it, it's not yours. This is how grace works. And godliness, which connects to this idea in Titus, is living out the grace that you have encountered in Christ. It's, back to Titus, if you would, it's living your life as a thank you note. It's saying, God, I'm so grateful 
for what you did for me. Now, while many of us know a lot about Timothy, we don't know a lot about Titus. So let me give you a quick overview on this gentleman named Titus. Who is he? His name actually means pleasant. And when you think of Titus, some of you have heard the story of a man named Titus Vespasian. Titus Vespasian was the Roman commander who led the troops into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Titus is a Gentile name because that's what he was. He was not a Jewish man. Now, we don't know a whole lot about how Titus got saved, but we do know this, that somewhere along the line, he became a Christian. Most scholars, if you read, you know, uh, background on the book of Titus, say that somewhere along Paul's missionary journeys, he witnessed to Titus, and Titus became a Christian. And then he became a man that would travel with the Apostle Paul and became a very entrusted man, a partner and fellow worker in the work of the gospel, says 2 Corinthians 8.23. In fact, I think Titus is mentioned at least nine times in 2 Corinthians, and he's a very prominent man in terms of leadership in the church. In Galatians 2, a few pages back, a little bit before you, where you were in Ephesians, go back there for a second, there's a scene that happens in Galatians 2 which uh, illustrates the background of Titus. Go, go to Galatians 2, look at verse 1. Galatians 2, verse 1. Paul's telling his story about how the Lord worked in his life, how he received the gospel, and how he verified the gospel uh, back with some of the pillars of the church. Galatians 2, verse 1, he says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, Galatians 2, 1, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them even for an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Titus is a prominent person in this exchange where they go to Jerusalem and Paul's verifying the gospel and interacting with some of the pillars there in Jerusalem. And Titus is with him who's a Gentile. And there was an early movement, and that's a lot of what Galatians is about and often categorizes these Judaizers. And these Judaizers were saying, you cannot be a Christian unless you're circumcised and you keep the laws of Moses. So Titus was there, and when Paul showed up, apparently some of these guys saw Titus, said he's a Gentile, and if he's going to be part of the saved community, he has to be circumcised. You can imagine Titus going, fight for me, please. <laughs> anyway, Paul said, no, he doesn't, because circumcision is not what saves you. Christ saves you. So the, so Titus became this illustration of a Gentile who didn't need to go through a conversion into Judaism to be saved. He had received the gospel, he had become a convert, and circumcision was not the issue. Circumcision of the heart is really the issue. So that's, that's one story about Titus. One more th uh, to just check out. Go to 2 Corinthians, just a few pages back now, 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Let me just read a little bit from my notes. Titus next appears in connection with Paul's mission to Corinth. 
While Paul was in Ephesus, and you want 2 Corinthians 7, during his third missionary journey, he received disturbing news from the church at Corinth. After writing two letters and paying one visit to Corinth, Paul sent Titus to Corinth with the third letter. When Titus failed to return with news of the situation, Paul left Ephesus and with a troubled spirit traveled north to Troas. He is, uh, I mentioned he's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians, Titus is. Finally, in Macedonia, Titus met the anxious apostle with good news that the church at Corinth had repented. In relief and joy, Paul wrote yet another letter to Corinth, perhaps from Philippi, sending it again through Titus, which is recorded in 2 Corinthians 7, 15, and 16. In addition, Titus was given responsibility for completing the collection for the poor uh, saints in Jerusalem. So if you just take a peek, look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And Titus brought this good news. Hey, Paul, the Corinthian church has read your letter. They have responded in repentance. I have good news. And Paul felt a great amount of relief. And Titus became the vehicle by which Paul got this relief. Sometimes what happens, and I want you to notice, verse six, some of you need to hear this, God comforts who? The depressed. Look, sometimes in life, if you go back to Titus, we're gonna be depressed. It's not a sin to be depressed, by the way. Apparently, Paul was. His circumstances were overwhelming. He was wondering, you know, how the Corinthian church had responded to his letter. It was tough for him to write the letter. He said, look, I I didn't enjoy writing the letter, but I wanted the fruit of the letter, that is your repentance, to be what really mattered. And when he heard that they had repented, he was grateful. And some of the pressure lifted from his life. And that came with the good news of the message that Titus brought. Sometimes people just... God can use people to lift our burdens. Uh, Paul, right here in the third row, did a message with the, uh, the men's breakfast, and he was talking about encouragement. And we're talking about different uh, definitions of encouragement. And encouragement is to put courage into people. Discouragement is to take courage out of people. Titus seemed to be a man of encouragement. And uh, he was willing to take some tough tasks He was willing to take a stand for the truth and uh, Paul is going to tell him that he needs to appoint elders in the areas of uh, Crete, which we'll get to in a second message here. But he was a man for tough tasks. A final reference to Titus appears in 2 Timothy 4.10 where Paul remarks that Titus has departed from mission work in Dalmatia, which scholars say is modern Yugoslavia, but Yugoslavia now is broken up as well, so whatever you call it now. And Eusebius wrote that Titus, uh, he wrote around A.D. 325, returned to Crete to become the first bishop of that area and died at a ripe old age. So that's a little background on the book of Titus. Now let's, we're just going to go the first four verses and let's uh, break in now to the letter to Titus. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, Titus 1.1. Now even though the letter is called Titus, the author is Paul. Paul is writing to Titus, and ancient letters, they would sign the letter in the beginning instead of the end. So you might write a letter to a friend or an email to a friend, and you would sign that, 
sincerely, or God bless you and yours, or peace, or however you end your letters, favorite Bible verse, and you'd say, Michael Lance. Well, in the ancient world, they would start by addressing who they were at the beginning. So Paul describes himself as the author of the letter. So there shouldn't be any debate about the author, right? Sometimes you read uh, critical scholars and stuff like that, and they say, we're not sure Paul's the author. Oh, uh, Really? Yeah, because some of the language shifts and changes and uh, it doesn't sound like Paul. Remember how I told you last week in Mark 16 that there's some unique words of some scholars doubted that Paul wrote Titus and all of that. Just throw that out the window. The author is Paul. He's addressing some unique subjects, so there is a shift in some of the language and Paul seems to be a little older. Just FYI, he probably wrote this letter around A.D. 65, Okay. Just to give you a time marker, Paul died around 68. So this is about three years before he dies. Some date the letter a little earlier, but you could say between 62 and 65 is the letter to Titus. So he's a little older, and he's writing to a pastor who has a lot of responsibility. Paul, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, two descriptions of Paul. He says, I'm a bondservant, and he says, I'm an apostle. Bondservant is the uh, Greek word doulos. The Hebrew is eved. A bondservant is a voluntary servant. It's a voluntary slave. And the story of a bondservant is laid out in Exodus 21. You don't have to turn there, but I think a lot of you are familiar with this. And here's the idea. If a slave or a servant, and there were a lot of servants in the ancient world, we'll talk about that. If he had served his time, let's say his seven years, and now he could go free, he had a decision to make. And he could decide that he loved his master so much that he would stay with his master. If the slave plainly says, Exodus 21.5, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not, not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door, door of, or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So if you took the role of a bondservant and you said, look, master, you know, I've been blessed in your, in your house. I have so much going on here. I love you. I don't want to leave. You would go to the doorpost of the house. They would take something like an awl, like an ice pick. Uh, apparently no medication to uh, numb the area. And they would drive the ice pick through your ear. And here, there's two ideas in Hebrew. One is you would be attached to that house forever, attached to your master forever, idea number one. So you were a servant always attached to that house, always connected. Number two, your ear was always open to the voice of your master. So they would put the hole through your ear to signify I'm always attached to this house. By the way, at, at thresholds of houses, they would make covenants. You know, the, uh, the, even in modern times, sometimes the bridegroom will carry a bride over the, what, threshold. And that's where they made covenants in the ancient world. In fact, when the lamb was killed back in the Exodus, the blood ran into the basin of the house. That door was sealed in a covenant, if you will. And so this is what they do. And so you'd be attached to that house forever, and your ear would always be open to the voice of your master. What would you have me to do, master? That's what a bondservant says. Every day you wake up, if you're a bondservant of Christ, you say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? 
although I have a few, uh, and this is in small print. I don't do windows. <laughs> I don't use the weed whacker because things fly up at you, you know, right? No, 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 no. If your ear is open to your master, whatever he says to do, you do. Amen. And all kinds of people said, oh, I don't know. I, <laughs> really? What if it's an area of the world? What if it's a ministry that you, when you first started out, how many of you have done this? Lord, I'll do anything except. And you know, oftentimes that except is where God places you. I would not even use language like that. <laughs> there are no exceptions, right? Just say, Lord, I'm in your service. There's an old story that is told about Abraham Lincoln. He went down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. As she looked at the white man bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going to buy her and then abuse her. He won the bid, and as he was walking away with his property, he said, young lady, you are free. She said, what does that mean? He said, it means you are free. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she said, I can be whatever I want to be? Lincoln said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Lincoln said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl with tears streaming down her face said, then I want to go with you. This is the idea of a bondservant. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He bought us out of the slave market of sin, but he bought us to be free. But where else do you want to go? Who else do you want to serve? Do you want to serve the one that didn't buy you or the one that did? I choose to serve the one that bought me with his blood. Amen? Amen. I, serve, I choose to live out my life in service of the one who cared enough to buy me out of that situation. At great cost, by the way. And so that's the idea of a bondservant. Paul is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Think about Paul's conversion. He was an enemy of Christ. He hated the church. He really, you could say he hated Christ and he had an encounter and he became a servant forever. You can, you can become a, a servant of Jesus Christ from any background. Once you meet him, he'll change your life forever. And then secondly, he, Paul's called an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. It means a delegate, a messenger, one who's sent forth with orders. And so that's what Paul did. He went all over the ancient world telling other people, here's, here's, here it is simply put, how to be free. Do you know that this community this morning could be called that we are a community of freed slaves? This is a community of freed slaves. Slaves to what? Jesus said any man or woman who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many of you could say, you could come up here right now and tell your story about how sin enslaved you. Look, it did for all of us in different ways. And Jesus Christ broke those chains. He opened the prison door. He made you free. And that's why Paul says, I'm now a messenger of that message. This is a community of freed slaves. And Paul says, look, I'm gonna go all over the world and tell other people how they can be free. Are you doing that? Do you see ministry as an opportunity to tell people how to be free? 
We get so fearful about evangelism, but if you think of, about evangelism in that sense, that there's a bunch of people in chains and bondage that need to know where freedom is, will you hold back? Will you hold the key in your pocket and not take it out? That seems silly, doesn't it? We have people walking around, think of this image, in chains like this walking around, and we're not going to give them the key? Why would we do that? Well, that's the idea. Jesus Christ is the message that Paul preaches, and he preaches it as an apostle, one sent out by God to tell people where to buy freedom. He says, I've been set apart. Look at verse, uh, well, that's set apart for the gospel of God is actually Romans 1.1, but let's read the end of Titus 1.1. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So, Paul says, I've been, I'm doing what I'm doing for the faith of those chosen of God. That is, it could be their initial faith, verse 1, or it could be the growth of their faith, or I think it could be both. The church's ministry is pretty simple. It's to win people to the Lord and then grow them up in their most holy faith, right? So we're try to, we try to go out and win them, and then we, of course, want to grow them up. So, he says, for the faith of those chosen, by the way, you are chosen of God, chosen from the foundation of the world. You are the elect of God. Now, when people hear about election, they get a little nervous. Like, what does that mean, election? Did he elect some and not elect others? How does this work? I want to know more about election. Well, let me just say this. There have been people debating the concept of predestination and election for 2,000 years, so if your brain hurts after I spend two minutes on it, just join the party, okay? So, the latest that's come out that I've heard about is called simultaneous election. You say, what does that mean, Pastor Michael? Well, here's what troubles people. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches election, that God chose us, right, from the foundation of the world. The question really becomes, on what basis does he choose us? Well, here's how... I understand simultaneous election. God is eternal. We often have heard illustrations that God has to look down a corridor of time. And then he says, oh, that person will choose me or that person won't. Or other people say, well, he just decided that one's in, that one's out. Chosen, not chosen. In, out. Love him, don't love him. <laughs> but that's not really my understanding of it. God is eternal. God does not have to look down a corridor of time. Everything for God is now, right? He, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He knows everything, past, present, and future. This, is, this goes with his omniscience. He knows everything. So he doesn't have to learn anything. He doesn't have to look down a corridor of time. He already knows everything. So he knows who's going to be in and who's going to be out. So in simultaneous election, he simply chose you and his eternal nature and you still have to respond to God. Now, people say, well, if God chose us, does that mean that we have no part to play? No, I think we do have a part to play. I think we still have to believe. I don't think God's going to repent for you, nor do I believe that God's going to believe for you. Because if he did, then the world is just basically, we're a bunch of robots, and we just respond to God because he makes us respond to him. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to come to the Lord, to repent, to believe. So however you want to work this out, and look, I'm not going to be dogmatic even on the sim simultaneous election. 
I'm just going to say to you, God chose you. Aren't you glad? I mean, you could be in the unchosen category. I'm really struggling with the fact that I'm chosen. (laughs) Well, I don't know what to tell you then. But as Spurgeon put it, I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he would have chose me after I was born. He never would have chose me. I don't even know how to make sense of that either. (laughs) For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, verse 1, which is according to godliness. Paul's ministry is around the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is used for God's desire for people to be saved. He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.5. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that people might come to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses and turn away from the snare of the devil. It's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 3.7. This would apply to Titus directly who came to the knowledge of the truth probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So that's what we do. We go out and preach the truth that people can be free. And Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So this is what we do. We go out. We want people to encounter the knowledge of the truth. If you want to write down 1 John 5, 20 and 21, it says, we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. The knowledge of the truth saves us. You got to embrace it. And then we are sanctified by truth. We have verses in this sanctuary. Take a look up here for a second. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Thy word is truth. So we we get saved by the knowledge of the truth. We grow. We get sanctified more as we interact with the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? It is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So Paul's ministry is for people to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this knowledge of the truth is according to godliness. End of verse 1. Now, now this is why you, you're realizing we're only going to do four verses, right? because uh, we haven't gotten that far so far. (laughs) (laughs) Now, godliness is a Greek word called eusebia. E-U-S-E-B-I-A. Eusebia. There's a church father called Eusebius, right? Eusebia is godliness. It speaks of holiness, piety, reverence. It is behavior that reflects one's true beliefs Godliness, this is very important for this this whole book. I told you you're saved by grace, but then you live out godliness. Godliness can be defined as a God-centered life or a God-dominated life. That's godliness. So if you ever wondered, what's the definition of godliness? Some people say it's God-likeness. To be imitators of God, certainly true. But it is a life that is centered in God. It's not a perfect life. If you would be called a godly young man or woman or uh, whatever it is, it's not because you're perfect. Everybody around you knows that, right? But godliness is a life that is on the climb towards more and more holiness. Not perfection, but growth. 
Godliness is centering your life in God and his priorities and purposes. God is not an afterthought to you. He is the center of your life. His word and his will and his ways dominate your decision making. When you make decisions in life, you think about God. You think about God's word. You think about how this is going to impact the kingdom of God. That's godliness. So if godliness is a God-centered life, what is ungodliness? It's a self-centered life. It is, I'm going to coin a new term. The opposite of godliness is selfliness. Everybody write that down. Make sure you give me credit. Pastor Michael Lance, put the date on there. The opposite of godliness is selfliness. Now this is captured well in this particular motion. Just look up here and I'll show it to you. Everybody see that? That was Pastor Michael weekly illustrating a selfie. Now I'm just kidding. Selfies are not the illustration of ungodliness. They are partially an illustration. <laughs> Have you ever just walked away from an, an encounter with someone and just said, that person is selfie? You know what I'm saying? Selfie. You haven't? <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, let me tell you this about me and me, 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 and I, and then you try to tell the story, and they're the me, they one-up you in their story. Brian Regan called it the me monster. He said you could be at a party talking to someone, and every time you tell something that you think is great, they one-up you. Well, me, and the monster just starts to grow out of their forehead. Me, me. They profess to know God, Titus 1.16, but by their deeds they deny Him. There are people who say they know God, but then you look at their lives and you're like, uh, no. Godliness teaches us to say no. That's Titus 2.12 in the NIV to ungodliness and worldly passions. Look, godliness is a battle. To live a God-centered life, to surrender to God, to let God's way and word and spirit dominate you, it's, it's a battle. The flesh is always trying to get the upper hand. But godliness is a God-centered life, and ungodliness is a self-centered life. It's just simply put that way. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you're listening to this and maybe you're a fairly new Christian. You're thinking, man, that's a lot to ask of a person. Because all of our natural tendencies in the world are towards self. There's even a self magazine. Right? So, how, or you might ask, why should I live this way? You know, that's a lot to give up, you might say. And here's what might follow this up. And I think this is a legitimate question. If I am going to live this way, then I want to know for sure that this whole deal is true. Because I hear some people say, people say, uh, being a Christian, even if there's not a God, has been the best way of life. Now, I would agree that there are many things about the Christian life that even if there wasn't a God, are good things. But I'll say this to you. My flesh would say, I'm not sure I agree with that. So, 
Look, the bottom line is, I want to make sure this is true. Now, I'm being real with you folks. Look, I told you, if the Bible's not true, go to the beach. Go do something else. I don't know why you'd listen to the same man, you know, 48 out of 52 weeks a year, or whatever you people do. And it's, it's really an amazing miracle that you do this. I, I want to talk to you later about why you do it. But anyway, but look, you're not listening to a man, right? You're listening to the Word of God. And the Word of God, here's what it says, this hope that we have of eternal life, look at verse 2, God has promised it, and God cannot lie. Oh, aren't you glad? The book of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. It's opposite of his nature. He's the God of truth. God cannot lie. He's never been caught in a lie. He cannot lie. He's made a promise to us, and that promise was based in eternity past. In fact, some of the versions say, uh, where it says promise long ages ago, it says, before time began, you were always in God's plan before time began. He knew you, he loved you, and he called you. He loved you before he made time. Try to get your head around that one. And the promise that he's made to you of the hope of eternal life. See the word hope there? Hope is not like we say, I hope that the Atlanta Falcons win the Super Bowl. Okay? Hope there's no Falcons fans in here. Now the Patriot fans are saying, I hope the Patriots win the Super Bowl. That was a pretty amazing Super Bowl, wasn't it? But anyway, we're not going to go there. But here's the thing. When, I, when I, we say, I hope something's going to happen, that's our modern way of saying, gee golly, I, we'll give it the college try. Who knows? The word hope in Greek is elpis. It's an incredible word. The word hope in Greek means, I know so. This hope cannot fail. It is that this hope in Hebrews 6 is described as the anchor of our souls. It's not I hope so, it's I know so, and it's based on the concrete confidence of the finished work of Christ. Amen? You don't have to wonder. God is the one who made the promise. He made it in eternity past, and it's impossible for God to lie. The promise is as good as God's word is. Can you bank your life on God's word? I think so. But at the proper time, verse 3, manifested even his word, that's the word lagos here. It can mean, it can speak often of Jesus or the preaching of the word. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, Paul says this, this promise from God made in eternity past manifested itself. You could say it manifested itself namely in the person of Christ because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? It says in Galatians 4.4, that when the time was just right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those of us who were under the law, that's all of us, under the condemnation of the law. It's been manifested, and it's been manifested in the proclamation, which Paul is up to, which I was entrusted. Paul said he gave it to me to preach it to the Gentiles, and it was the commandment of God our Savior. By the way, the proclamation of Paul and ours is not a suggestion. 
The, it's not called the great suggestion in Matthew 28. It's called the great commission. God has commissioned us to preach the good news, right? To tell people how they can be free. And so Paul said, I'm pouring myself out to this ministry. This is what I do. And by the way, this is what the church does. And don't think of the church as a building now. You are the church. No matter where we might meet, no matter if we met under a tree or in a building, you're the church. And every one of you has a spiritual gift, at least one, probably several, to carry out the ministry that God has called you to do. And he has a spiritual gift that he's given you, and that spiritual gift is personal to you, and you're supposed to live out that spiritual gift so that the message can be proclaimed. Sometimes you earn the right to be heard at work. Someone watches you for a while and says, hey, what is it about you? Sometimes you have a moment and you get to pray with somebody. And sometimes you're doing a Bible study somewhere and someone listens in and is curious. Sometimes you have to preach to somebody for 10 years. And finally they say, okay, I'm now open. Whatever it may be, God wants to use you and me. Paul poured himself into others so that they could also hear the truth and then become proclaimers of the message. Think of Timothy and Titus and you've got the idea. And then he says, finally, for verse 4 for this morning, to Titus, the letter is from Paul to Titus. He calls Titus my true child in a common faith. Now, I don't know if you can really think about how earth-shattering this is. A former Jewish Pharisee calls a Gentile man my true child in the faith. That is earth-shattering. In first century uh, Israel, that didn't happen. Jewish people didn't even walk into the homes of Gentiles to eat a meal with them. Peter was uh, afraid to go into the house of Cornelius. He thought it would make him unclean. And now Paul says, Titus has become my child. You know, in the body of Christ, what happens is that all divides, whether they be along racial lines or whether they be along, you know, whatever, whatever you want to talk about that, you know, political, that causes people to be at enmity with one another is obliterated in Jesus Christ. Now, I know we have our opinions, right? I know we have our outlooks on life in terms of maybe your political point of view. But in the end, all of those things dissipate at the foot of the cross. We are family. And we're supposed to behave as family. We're supposed to love each other as God loves us. And Paul says, Titus, you are my true child. Relationships in the body of Christ are so precious. I don't think there's anything like them in the whole world. Because this family, we've been freed by the same Savior. We serve the same Lord. The blood that saved me saved you. The Christ that saved me saved you. And we're going to a forever place where we're going to get to hang out in a and here's the really good news, because some of you are saying, but some people, look, in the church, they're a pain. I know. But look, I got good news. All of our rough edges are going to dissipate in eternity. No more of that anymore. No more selfies in eternity. People are going to invite you into the picture. It'll be great. We have a common faith. 
It unites all believers, Jews, Gentiles alike. Jesus is our Savior. In the Roaring Twenties, a story is told about John Griffith. He had a young son, and there's been different versions of the story told, but John Griffith had a young son, and he was a bridge operator, and so what he would do is he would, he would uh, raise and lower this huge bridge for ships that would pass through this area. And he took his young son, you know, to this bridge one day, and so he was enjoying time with him. They had packed a lunch, and somehow, you know, he, he fell into a nap or something, and the young son got away. And it turns out that the story says that the young son somehow got himself caught in the gears of this this huge bridge that was operating. And John Griffith heard the whistle of the oncoming train. And so there were several hundred passengers on the train, and his son was screaming to him, you know, caught in the gears. And, and he realized he didn't have enough time to go rescue his son and still lower the bridge in time for the passengers to safely cross. And so he was faced with the decision. Do I sacrifice my son for these several hundred people? Or do I run up and grab him and these people plunge to their sure death? What do I do? So as the story is told, John Griffith decides that the thing that he has to do is he has to sacrifice his son. And he covers his face, tear-stained face, and he pushes on the handle and the cries of his son are drowned out by the passing train. And he looks into the windows of the train and he sees a man reading a newspaper and people, you know, having tea and talking and a little boy eating a dish of ice cream that looks, you know, a lot like his own child. And as the train passes and he sacrificed his own son, he screams at the train. He says, you, you people, don't you know what I've done for you? And he screams into the windows of the train, but no one can hear him and no one even realizes what he's just done. And do you realize that God loved you so much. He wasn't caught by surprise. All illustrations fall apart at some point, but it gives you an idea of what God did. God was willing to give his son that, that passengers on, on the train might live. And brothers and sisters, you were on the train. If he doesn't give his son, you perish. But the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did not spare his own son. He gave him so that we might be on a different train, right? A train that's headed to glory. That's what God did for you and for me. That's what we share in common. That's the message that we preach. That's the hope that we have. Father, thank you again for your word. We want to thank you for the letter to Titus. It's a, a great letter. And there's going to be a lot ahead of us that we can learn about how to live out our faith in the home, in the church, in the home, and in the world. And we want to be a people that have a life that's centered in Jesus Christ, a life dominated by the Holy Spirit, a life that says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met this incredible, loving Christ, if you've never realized what he did for you, how he laid down his life in a brutal way, and took God's wrath for you, 
how you were on the train and you were going to die in your sins and trespasses without him. And you've never reached out and received that gift by faith of grace. Now's the time. You know, he loved you from the foundation of the world. I think we could say he, he's always loved you. But you must receive that love. You must take the ticket that's been purchased for you. Would you reach out right now and just say something like this? Pray it to him, Jesus. Pray it out loud. Don't wait another day. Jesus, I believe. Thank you that you died on that cross for my sins. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sins. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, and give me a new start in Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, may you bless them. For those who may have prayed a prayer of rededication, may you wash over them and just encourage them with your incredible love that never gives up on us, never fails. And may we live out a life of godliness in response to your grace as we uh, allow you to use us in this world, in this fallen world, to preach the good news of freedom in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, we're gonna do a closing song. Would you stand? And if you do need prayer or you've responded to the gospel this morning, please come up. We'll be waiting for you and we wanna pray with you, okay? God bless you guys.